Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Matthew 21. And our text is Matthew 21 and verses 12 through 17 this morning. Matthew 12. Uh, Matthew 21, verses 12 through 17. I'm going to read uh, the Scriptures here together today. I'm going to read all the way through verse 27, but our message is on verses 12 through 17 in particular today. And let's um, look together on God's Word and listen to this fascinating story about Jesus in a way you don't normally see Him. This is uh, obviously after the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus, and then He went home, went back to stay in Bethany, and then he comes back the next day and he goes directly to the temple. And what he does when he goes to the temple is quite shocking. Verse 12 says, Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And he said to them, Do you hear what these are saying? And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? And then he left them and he went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. And now in the morning as he returned to the city he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And he said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive... Now when he came into the temple, the chief priest and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? But Jesus answered and said to them, I will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I like wells will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray. Jesus, when we look at the word, you are so Beautiful, you are so manly, you are so divine, you are so merciful, you are so uh, inspiring to think on. When we look in the Word and every day, every week when we study the Bible and we see a different aspect of who you are, our hearts are more thrilled and we sense more need. And I pray for the people today. They have gathered here, they're hungry, they're needy, some of them are hurting real bad. 
Some of them are confused. Some of them aren't believers yet. Some of them are involved in things they shouldn't be involved in, and you are small to them and their, their lives are big. Some of them, Lord, are, are burdened down with guilt and shame that they've never been able to shake. Lord, some of them just have a lot of trouble believing you can really forgive them. And I'm just asking you now today that as we look at this story, that this story will touch our hearts in a deep way and help us see you in a clear way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It's interesting what Jesus did. He goes to the temple and he, um, this is called, often called the cleansing of the temple, which is sort of a mild euphemism for such a violent thing. Jesus flipping tables over in other passages, you know, he's braiding a whip and driving people out. It's like a very angry, violent, loud uh, thing to do. It's kind of unlike the Jesus of your Sunday school class this one, this story doesn't fit in our profile sometimes of a Jesus who's sort of um, maybe a little bit not manly, you know. He, he goes in and cleanses the temple. He cleans house. And, and it's interesting where he goes. He, he goes to the temple. He, he could have gone to the fort. If you think about this, okay, Rome is occupying the place we call the Holy Land. The land where the, this, this land is a holy place. And Rome is occupying it. Why didn't Jesus go to the fort in Rome? And why didn't he clean house there? He had authority in his authority and his heart, and the heart of everything was the temple, the worship of God. That was before everything else. And he goes to the temple, and he addresses this matter of the worship of God. And this is the second cleansing of the temple. All the Gospels talk about the cleansing of the temple. John's account is of the earlier cleansing of the temple. It's like he begins his ministry by going to the temple and establishing his authority, and he's coming to the close of his ministry, and he goes back and he does it again. And there's a great significance to two cleansings of the temple. We'll talk about that. Now, when you read this verse, be very careful. When you read this story, you want to be really careful with it. Because what you can easily do is you can kind of make this fit little restrictions that you've come up with for church. You know, like for instance, I've heard people often say, like as a boy growing up, this is why we don't ever sell anything in the church house. You know, so if a missionary comes and they have a book and this missionary is living on, you know, poverty wages and they, they try to recover the cost of their book and they sell their book for eight or nine dollars and you, you don't want to object to that and say, this is what Jesus was against. This is not what Jesus was against. You're going to see that real clearly. Jesus is not against an honest transaction among God's people where they meet. He's not against that. This, pitch, this passage is not teaching that that is wrong. Not at all. Not even close. Um, it, this is where the worship is supposed to happen. These, th- this is the place that's supposed to make quiet prayer possible for people. This is the peace, place where people should be able to come in their grief and they should be able to pour their hearts out to God. It should be a place where people can come with their guilt and with their shame, and they should be welcomed there so that they can make an offering in the Old Testament economy. This is a place of prayer. This is a place where people should be able to come and should be able to cry out, not always quiet. Hannah's prayer in the temple wasn't quiet. Because when you're really desperate, your prayers aren't always quiet. But sometimes they are very quiet. But there should be a place for people to come and pray. And so it was when Jesus saw that worship was being perverted, He cleanses the temple. 
He cleans house. He goes to the temple and he drives out the people that are buying and selling. They're, there's uh, the, Roman, the, the, the Roman coinage has to be exchanged for the Hebrew coinage. And there's advantage being taken of people. Advantages being taken of poor people here. You have to have an acceptable sacrifice. Oh, here in the Bazaar of Annas, we'll sell you a, an acceptable sacrifice. And the acceptable sacrifices were sometimes sold for five times what it would cost to buy a dove or a sheep somewhere else. And so the poor were being taken advantage of in this Bazaar of Annas, the high priest. And the people hated it, naturally, because it was oppressive and wrong. And it wasn't just oppressive, it was using religion to oppress people, which is it, exceedingly wrong. This b- stirred up righteous indignation in Jesus. You don't see righteous indignation very often. Most of the times when you think you're righteously indignant, you're not. Most of your anger is just plain old wickedness, sin. And there's probably nothing, even in churches, good churches like ours, who have like sound doctrinal statements that alienates more of our own young people and our wives and others than just plain old-fashioned sinful anger. I, I know people, they have, all, they have a long list of things they say they believe and that they force on other people, but they live angrily and they have a, a spirit of hostility. And then they wonder why people don't adopt their list of things that they believe with such conviction Jesus wasn't that kind of angry. Jesus didn't ever abuse people. You're going to see that right here in this passage. He healed people. Jesus didn't like pour out, he didn't ventilate his like personal anger. He was meek and willing to allow people to abuse him. He wasn't standing up for his personal rights. Jesus laid down his personal rights. This is not what we were talking about. Jesus' heart of of anger was stirred up in righteous anger, in righteous indignation, because people were being oppressed, and other people were using religion to oppress people that were poor or that were irreligious. And irreligious people were being forced out, and they couldn't get to God, they couldn't get to worship, they couldn't come with their prayers, they couldn't come with their questions, they couldn't come with their sacrifices, they couldn't get free of their sin, because people were making a a mockery of things in this bazaar. And that angered Jesus. And that's why he cleaned house. He had the authority here, and he wanted to make that really clear. Now, there are a lot of ways that we can look at this, but as I studied it and my heart studied on this and I thought about you, here's what came to my heart and here's how I want to approach this together. And this is the way I would like for you to think about this today. I'd like you to, th- I'd like you to just, I mean, who's the main character, right? Is, who's the main character in this story? Good. Guys, making sure you're awake. Yeah, Jesus is the main character in the story. He comes, he's pretty large in this story, right? He is not off in the corner. I imagine he got the attention of everybody. He walked in, my parents used to tell me that. They used to say, Ken, um, you, you don't have to, that you, when you walk in the room, people know it. You know, you, they, that's like, Jesus, when he walked in the room, people really knew it. Especially when he walked <laughs> Especially when he walked in the room this time, he's carrying a whip. He didn't look like Solomon's head of Christ right there with the cute hair, you know, and the blue eyes and the blue blonde wavy hair. There's no way. He's got a whip, people. He's flipping over tables. There are a lot of men there, and none of them are doing anything to stop him. 
I want you to look at who is Jesus. Who really is Jesus? Not the nursery rhyme Jesus, not the little effeminate, you know, meek and mild Jesus. The Jesus of the Bible. What is he really like? Let's look at him. I want to show you three things about Jesus from this passage today. I want you to look at them. And I think what you'll find is that your heart is drawn like a magnet to this man who is God. And why? And that you'll, you will want to go to Him over and over again. And you will want to take your deepest heartaches to Him. And you will want to bring your friends to Him when you see again how beautiful He is and how magnetic it is and what a man He is. Let's look at first the manliness of Jesus. Let's look at the manliness of Jesus. Got a call from Holly. She's on her way home from work. I will not have permission to share this illustration because if I asked, she would say no, and it ruined my good story, so I'm just telling it. And She lives in my house, and it's the way it works. So we're tight, and I'll probably have to buy coffee for her. But she calls me. She says, I'm thinking about going to the Holy Land. I'm like, that's cool. She's looked into this, called Moody Bible Institute about that, and, and got a hold of Charlie Dyer. Charlie Dyer said, you know what's amazing? we got a group of seminarians from Dallas Theological Seminary probably a significant number of those are single young men who are going, and we have one place left. One place left. Holly has a, felt a strong calling to go to the Holy Land. And so she's, Dad, I'm thinking about doing that. We were talking when Holly was little, and, and we were talking about, well, what kind of man do you want to marry someday? She says, I don't know, Dad. She's kind of apologetic. She says, I want to marry a guy who's rugged, but godly. Jesus was rugged. And godly. He was a technon. He was, he was a builder. In, in the Middle East, you built with stones. He was a stonemason builder, probably. For, for the years of his life, he, he's a man that works with his hands. You shake his hand, you know you're shaking hands with a man. When Jesus said something, he had authority. It, Jesus had depth of conviction. All the things that make man, a man a man, Jesus had them. And he was humanity like you've never seen humanity. We've never seen unfallen humanity. This is God, but a man. The manliness of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus, makes him very attractive. Very attractive. We can talk about femininity. I'd probably get myself in a lot of trouble doing that. Just going to talk about masculinity right now. There's something beautiful about femininity. There's something beautiful about masculinity. Jesus was a man. And you see his manliness in this passage. You see, you see it in places that you might not think about. In verse 17, you see that Jesus tired, and he wanted to go to, the, to a home where he was comfortable and rest. Jesus got tired. That's part of his humanity. It's part of one of the things that makes humanity um, humanity. You get tired. Jesus enjoyed community, enjoyed fellowship. Jesus would often go, you know, where did he spend his last, the, the nights in his last week of life? You know, you, the, this, the Bible says it in a kind of a shadowy way. You have hints that he spent time in Bethany. We're assuming this is in the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He raises Lazarus from the dead. Can you imagine what it would have been like? I love to think about this. You talk about small group. Jesus was four small groups, by the way. So, I mean, you should be too. Yeah, there's somebody talking bad about small groups. I'm like, man, I wouldn't want to do that. Jesus changed the world with small groups. Disciples were a small group, right? Two or three are gathered. That sounds like a small group to me. So if you're against small groups, don't tell me about it. I want to hear it. Jesus loved them. This small group, some of you are looking at me so funny, it's like, yeah, what you see is what you get, right? So Jesus goes to this small group, and he's got this family, and they're, they're, they're eating food. 
Was there music? Did they sing songs that they liked? Did they talk about favorite memories? If Jesus came to your house, would you make him something nice to eat? Oh, I'd be like, Lewis, you are not going to believe it. I'm going to go get the ring out of the bathtub right now. And boys, you go to the basement and don't even let me see your face until it is really nice down there. Right? Girls, can you light those candles that make it smell like fall in here? Lois, you know how you make those? You make that big special dish that everybody eats at Thanksgiving time. And they all do that. Jesus is coming to our house. And we want it to be a nice time. He's going to bless us. He's going to teach us. We were never going to forget this. Can you just imagine the humanity of Jesus? He loved community, fellowship, eating food, resting with friends, blessing people. And then when their brother died, they called him and Jesus came and he resurrected him. Jesus' humanity was just such, one of the things about him that was just so beautiful. He got hungry. See there in verse 18, now behold, I'm sorry, twenty-one eighteen is where I want to be. Now in the morning... As he returned to the city, like any man, he was hungry. That's a part of what it means to be human, especially what it means to be a man. You get hungry regularly. Jesus was hungry. Jesus also had it in him to deeply believe in things to the point of indignation sometimes. And if you aren't that way, you're not a man. A man believes stuff. That's true with women too. He was a man. A man of firm conviction. He was a man of resolution. He was a man with, a, with the most highly developed sense of justice that any man ever had. When something was wrong, he knew it. When something was right, he felt it. He was such a man. The most wonderful and acute sense of justice anyone ever had, Jesus had, and when he spoke, <laughs> people did what he said. And this was partly the strength of his humanity. When you read this story, you think, how in the world does one man walk into this huge bazaar in the court of the Gentiles where all these people are making money, and you mess with somebody's money, you're going to get yourself in trouble, am I right? You mess with somebody's money... There were a lot of men there that would have, I would have think if I wouldn't have done something like that, they would have ganged up on me and they would have thrown me out right away. He's flipping over tables, money's rolling everywhere, animals are squawking everywhere, people are stepping in it. I mean, it's a really interesting deal. And, and, and they do not suppress him. Why is that? I'll tell you one of the reasons is because he was a man, that's why. That's one of the reasons. It was just because of the strength of his, his humanity, of his manliness. It would be one of the reasons, no doubt about that. And then he was intelligent, he was quick thinking. You've got to love this about Jesus. He's quick on his feet. Verse 24, you've got to love this. You, know, the, the, you knew this was going to come, right? They're going to call him out and say, who, what authority do you have to do this? And then Jesus in rabbinic form asked them this. Right away he asked them a question they can't answer. He says, you answer a question for me and I'll answer your question. And they can't answer the question. And he says, then I don't have to answer your question. Jesus is saying to them, I don't have to tell you who's authority because I am the authority. By the way, there's a little tip for you. If you're an authority, you don't have to tell people. Just do what you have authority to do. Let them figure it out. 
That's what Jesus did. Part of him being a male is like, this is what I'm going to do. Because this, this is my father's world, and this temple belongs to my father, and I have a right here. And I will do, if I want to cast this mountain, this temple is built into the sea, that's what I'll do. If I want to take this temple down, I'll take it down. You don't have any right to pervert this temple. He's a man with authority, and he was quick-thinking and quick-witted. So you put all that together. A man that got hungry sometimes, and a man that got tired sometimes, and a man that was quick-witted and bright and fun to talk to, and a man that was tender-hearted and merciful, and he would heal and help people and teach people. And he was a man who deeply believed things and he had a well-developed sense. Of, Wouldn't you love to have known this man? Wouldn't you love to have walked one afternoon with this man? Wouldn't you love to have talked with this man? To be able to tell this man your problem. Friend, I'm telling you here today, you still can. You can know this man. You can follow this man in the impress and the imprint of his character by the miracle work of the Holy Spirit can be your character too. That's what he said. This is an amazing and wonderful thing. I love to look at the manliness, the humanity of Jesus. God, give us men like Jesus. Manly, manly, godly, merciful guys who get hungry and tired. (laughs) And then, of course, you know that Jesus was a man and every bit of man, but not just a man, but Jesus was and is the everlasting God. There was an authority in his manliness, but there was an authority and a boldness in his divinity you notice there in verse 13, even though he, even though he is God, he does what he does, referring to the authority of the Bible. And one of the things that makes a, a person of real conviction, a person of real conviction, you know there's a big difference between a bigot with prejudice, an angry, nasty, bigot of a person and a person of resolute biblical conviction right you know nobody nobody's attracted to a bigot nobody's attracted to a person like archie bunker who's got a bunch of opinions that are based on his own ignorance nobody's attracted to that that's not correct but when you take a man like jesus who's whose convictions are rooted in the truth of God. And when he speaks, he speaks the truth. And he has that perfect and wonderful, beautiful symmetry and balance that a person should have because their life is built on God's truth. And when he speaks, he says, because the Bible says this right here. Not because it's my opinion or my prejudice or my bigotry, but because this is what the Bible teaches. And that's the kind of man that Jesus was. He says, my house is to be called a house of prayer. You have made it a den of thieves. He's quoting from Jeremiah. And Mark, Mark points out the other piece that he says, a house of prayer for all nations. This book is uniquely Jewish. He's directing it specifically at Jewish people. You, this was supposed to be a house of prayer. He quotes the Bible. He's God, and his authority is his word. Isn't that interesting? You're not God, and your authority should be his word. And outside of his word, you should be really careful about the exercise of your authority. A pastor doesn't just tell people what to do, right? A pastor just teaches what the Bible says. And if people look at what the Bible says, as our shepherd pastors have said, this is what the Bible says. Is this what the Bible says? Is this what the Spirit says? That's how that works. 
Jesus had authority, the authority of his divinity. No doubt one of the reasons people did what he said was because it was supernatural. He was God. There was just a supernatural wave of power that came over the court of the Gentiles that day. And those hundreds of people, those hundreds upon hundreds of people that were making a, a, the, the temple of the living God into a bazaar were just like, they did what he said. You notice there are people that split and people that came in. He threw the people out that were taking advantage of other people. He threw the people out that were making it impossible for Gentiles or people that were irreligious to come to God. He threw those people out. And the people that he welcomed in, you can see them in verse 14. Who were they? They were the blind and the lame. And he healed them. I, I have, you notice I have a little limp. In the last few weeks I had just a little flare-up of a thing with my knee. I like to say it's an old football injury, but you know I never was never played football, so... You know, I practiced a little bit, but so it wasn't an old football injury, but I wish I could say, I don't know what it is. It's, but um, you know what happened is when I hurt my knee and then I have to go sit down for a while, it doesn't get better, then I'm, I'm knocked out and I can't go places I need to go and do what I need to do, and it's very frustrating. And I, some of you know what I'm talking about here. You have to ask people to wait on you, right? And then you're like, hey, um, I need a drink of water. Do you mind helping me? And everybody's nice to you, but you can tell they got their own life, right? And then you, you get out and you go around and you look at people and you go, there's a person on a walker over there. Oh, there's a person over there on one of those little carts. They're riding that little cart. And after a while, like, they're everywhere. They're everywhere. Lame people are everywhere. But I never noticed until I had trouble getting around. And so I'm in my recliner thinking... Okay, Jesus, I get what you're telling me. You're telling me you want me to notice the lame people in my life. You, you're telling me you want me to care about people who are sick. Jesus cared about people who were sick. Jesus cared about people who couldn't walk right. Jesus cared about people who were, were in pain at night. When the Pharisees didn't care about these people, they couldn't see. They didn't care at all. He, the Bible says in verse 15, he did wonderful things, and it says, and they were indignant. Do you see the difference? Jesus is angry. He's angry righteously, because these people don't care about people, and don't care if they get to God, and they don't care if they get their sins forgiven, and they don't care if they get their lives healed. They don't care. He's angry about that. They're angry because he's cut into their business. They're angry because he's threatened their way of life that they're used to. That's what they're angry about. He's done wonderful things. They're indignant about it. They're especially irritated because you've got people that are making loud noises in praise. Little children. I mean, of all the things, you've got these little kids. How are we going to get these little kids to shut up anyway? We've got little kids here that are making loud noise and they're talking about Jesus and they're saying, Hosanna, you need to get those kids shut up. What they're telling them. Can you just imagine... This is not dignified. This is not the way it should be. We should be able to buy and sell and make money without these little kids running around here making noise and talking about Jesus. Now that's weird. These people are obviously messed up. They're angry <laughs> because people are giving praise to Jesus. They're angry because Jesus is healing the lame and giving sight to the blind. They're, they're angry because He's calling them out because they made it. 
This was set up in the court of the Gentiles. It's interesting when you think about that. When you think about the phrase there in the Scriptures that says, my house, my house is to be called a house of prayer for all nations, that this bazaar of Annas was set up in the court of the Gentiles, the only place where people who were far from God, irreligious types, Gentiles, could come and make their way to God. The Jews didn't care about them. They were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. They had their own little club. They had paid their dues. They didn't care if anybody else got in. That's what makes Jesus mad. And we don't care if people who are far from God can get in to hear it, to, to take their sins to God. That stirs up his righteous indignation. This is the Word of God. In the time of the Reformation, the prevailing church was saying, your, your, your loved ones are going to die, they're going to go to purgatory. They made that up, it's not in the Bible. And to get out of purgatory, you've got to give money. It's called the sale of indulgences. That made God mad. It also made a monk named Martin Luther mad. started the Protestant Reformation. But we still have hucksters in the church today. People who are taking advantage of people's hurt and their, their need and their pain in order to make money on them, to, get, to, to elicit a cheap donation, to, to kind of fund their lavish lifestyles or to feather their, their, their nest or to, or to uh, assuage their huge egos. We've still got people that are using religion in that way. It still makes Jesus angry. We don't want to be a part of that. But be careful. Don't get too smug because he might flip your table too. Because when I was reading this, I thought, how many times do I come to worship? And if Jesus looks at my heart, my heart isn't compassionate like his heart. My heart isn't right like his heart. My heart isn't pure like his heart. I don't care about the poor like he cares desperately about the poor. That woman can't afford to buy that. You're not letting her worship. This makes me mad. Get out of my temple. You don't belong here. Nehemiah did the same thing. Throwing people out. <laughs> well, well, that's interesting, isn't it? Would he flip over your table? To some degree, have you put something between you and the true worship of Jesus? You've got that in place. Would he flip your table? Would he flip mine? Anybody going through the motions of worship without a heart yearning for God, Jesus would flip over their table. Because it's some other agenda, right? If you come to the temple with some other agenda than a heart that yearns for God, your table gets flipped. Jesus is God. Look at his humanity. Look at his deity. He had the right to indignation. And he has a right to indignation today if we make a show of worship, but our heart is somewhere else and our motives aren't pure and we don't care about what he cares about and we don't care about who he cares about. Now, notice the third thing about Jesus. Notice the humanity of Jesus, the beautiful humanity of Jesus, his manliness. Notice the divinity of Jesus, the, the unique divinity of Jesus, his authority. But notice this about Jesus, and this is the heart of this passage. Notice the mercy of Jesus. You want to know about this for yourself, because you need his mercy every day. That's why I like to sign my name, Under the Mercy, because I know I need his mercy every day. When it comes time for your funeral, and you don't know when it's going to be, would you make sure that if I get called upon to do your funeral, I would be able to stand up and say they were depending completely and totally on the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. Not on their own righteousness. 
Not on their own good deeds, but Jesus' wonderful, merciful good deeds. Not on their own merit, but on Jesus' mercy. Make sure your family knows that. Charlie made sure his family knew that. We thank God for that. We'll talk about that tomorrow. We have evidence of that. But look at the mercy of Jesus. Ask yourself, do you care about people like Jesus cares about people? Do I? Does my heart break for people like Jesus' heart breaks for people? Do I desperately want people to be able to get to God? Like Jesus desperately do you do you look around the world you live in and see the people that are in the world that you live in and they're so far from God and their lives are so messed up and they don't even know their head from their tail? But we get our little Bibles and we pack it off the church. Meeting after meeting, meeting after meeting, feeling smug. We paid our dues. This is our club. This is what we do. Too bad for them. They're going to hell. Jesus is going to rapture me. We're looking forward to going to heaven. I'm saying, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus is a heart of mercy that just beats with mercy all the time. Jesus' heart beats with mercy all the time, and you should be glad that's true. And your heart should be with mercy all the time. All the time, your heart should be with mercy. The poor people couldn't get to God. You got that. The, the, the people that were irreligious, the Gentiles, couldn't get to God. Uh, now, think about this. Um, when, when Jesus cleansed the temple, it was the second time he did it. Now, is that good or bad? Did you ever think of that? Is that good or bad? He comes through, he cleanses the temple, he says, this is not the way it should be. I want it this way. He takes a whip, he drives people out. They're like, it's a violent physical attack. He drives those people out, he flips over there, and then money goes everywhere, and they leave. In Mark, it says they'd made the, the temple court a thoroughfare. People were carrying... He says, no more carrying your burdens through this court. I don't want that to happen here anymore. And he cleanses the temple, and he, says, and he, and he leaves, and he kind of sets things right. But obviously, he needs to come back and do it again. So it didn't take, did it? It didn't take for very long, because he had to come back and do it again. Does that sound familiar to you? It did to me. When I thought about this, I thought, that's so me. Jesus comes in every once in a while and cleans house. Does he do that with you? It's revival time and he cleans. I'm talking about not the person sitting next to you. I'm talking about you, right? He cleans your clock. He cleans your house, right? Have you, you have, re, do you, you have a, you have a memory of, a recent memory, I hope, of repentance and tenderness to God. When he comes in and he cleans house in your house, he says, this is not a right thought. These are not right words. This is something I want in your life that's just obviously absent from your life and he cleans house and then you say, oh Jesus, I'm sorry, I'm your child. I will, God help me and I will try to make that right. And you do, but then what happens? You need a house cleaning again, right? But he says, no, I already cleaned house once. I'm, I'm going to only convict you one time. I'm not coming back to do it again. No, he comes back and he does it again. Yeah, that's good. That's a good thing. Aren't you glad that Jesus who's willing to come back again and say, no, you didn't get it right, and I'm telling you again, you need to get it right this time. I'm holding you accountable. Is that because he's mean? No, it's because he's merciful. His manliness, his humanity, his deity was all aimed at this great mercy that he was saying, I'm demanding repentance of you. And I want you to see this very clearly. There was a kid named Zach. I remember how I met him. I have like 14 stories to tell, but I'll just tell one. Zach, <laughs> that my church, and 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 uh, this was years ago, and and the guy came as a medical doctor, and he came up to me after church, visiting from out of town. He said to me, "I'm a Christian. I got saved in Crusade at college, and my parents they don't really know the Lord. 
And I wonder if you would go call on my parents. And I said, man, I'd be happy to do that. So early the next week, I got in my car and I drove into Mount Vernon. And I went, uh, uh, knocked on their door. And they were polite, kind of distant, kind of cold, but, you know, polite. And they, they invited me in. And we talked for a while, and I could tell I wasn't getting much of anywhere with them. You know, they were polite, they were kind, and then I got ready to leave, and I heard some commotion in the next room. I looked up, and a young woman walked out of the room. She looked me right in the eyes. She said, can I talk to you? I said, yes. (laughs) She said, I got a problem with my boy. He's just so rowdy. He's just rowdy all the time. He's like hyperactive. I'm like, he'll probably be a preacher someday, you know? He's hyperactive. Do you have anything to help me with a hyperactive kid? Her name was Jane. I said, Jane, I got a book by James Dobson. It's really a good book about hyperactive kids. It's great to read. And if you come to church on Sunday, I'll give you the book. Because I'm all tricky like that, you know? She says, I'd really like to have that book. But my son, Zach, is so wild, and he's just like, he's a holy terror. Like he wasn't, he was an unholy terror. But anyway, she says, if I bring him, he's just going to create such trouble. I'm like, that's okay, you bring him anyway. Now, Sunday morning, I'm sitting at my desk, and the regulars are coming in. All the due-paying regulars. And outside my window, I hear the purr of a little Ford Escort. And I look out there, and guess who it is? Jane and Zach and Amy and this young wife is rustling her little kids out of the car to get them in. No dad, just her. She takes them and puts them in the nursery and then she sits and she listens to me while I preach. Zach was an unholy terror. Did I tell you that? Trouble. So Sherry is in the nursery and Sherry says to me, Pastor Sherry's a good gal, loves the Lord today, still walks with the Lord. Sherry says to me, after church, Pastor, you have got to do something about Zach. He is a terror. She says to me in no uncertain terms like girls can do sometimes, you need to talk to her. You need to talk to his mother. And you need to tell her to come back here and get him. And I looked at Sherry. I said, Sherry was a little bit younger than me. I said, Sherry, listen, I'm not going to talk to her mother, and you're not either. Nobody's going to talk to her. We're going to leave her alone. Do whatever you have to do. Give the kid drugs. I don't care. I didn't say that. Do it. Do whatever. That's yeah. Do what you have to do, but let's not interrupt her. A couple weeks later. I was walking by the door, and she's talking with Lois. My husband drinks, and my husband swears, and he doesn't love the Lord, and he's not a Christian. And I go and visit him. His name's Gary. I'm waiting. To, I'm figuring this guy's like a till of the hun, you know. He's going to be a really bad dude, but that's okay. I'm tough, you know. So I walk up, and he's making sandwiches for the kids, soup, and he's making, you know, grilled cheese sandwiches. He's built the house. is pretty nice. He's made cabinetry for his wife that I could never have done for mine. And I'm like, you know, he's... He's not like the, the reincarnation of Adolf Hitler. And we talk for a while, and, you know, he's kind of quiet about it. No, he's not really interested in coming to church and so forth and, and all of that. His wife keeps coming, and I, I warn him. I say, your wife is hungry for God. You might want to come with her. We could talk. And no, I don't think so. Okay. A couple weeks later, she's crying. I don't know what's going on. I just see her crying. She's talking to the ladies of the church. I say to Lois, when I get home, what, what's up with Jane? She left her husband. Oh, no, I told her not to do that. Well, she did. I called Gary. Hey, Gary, 
I'm sorry this happened. I didn't tell your wife to do this. But, you know, she's just trying to seek God. And, you know, here, so that night, he's um, thinking about, he's very desperate. He's very desperate. And he's in his house, and he's alone. And he, uh, this is the longer version of the story that I was going to tell you, but I love this story. He's walking by the TV. The TV's just on. Charles Stanley's on the TV preaching, and, and Charles Stanley has that mannerism when he goes, he's preaching, he'll go, listen, listen. And just as he walked by the door, Charles Stanley says, listen, listen. And he says, and he stopped, he looked, and he said, your problem is pride. And Gary's pride was broken that night. He came to know the Lord. I baptized Gary and Jane and, and Zach and Amy and their kids. They had a big family after that. They, they know the Lord. They love the Lord. They walk with the Lord today. Now, if Gary and Jane and their family were here, they'd if Zach is a grown man himself, married, Christian, with kids, we're friends on Facebook. Right? You can be his friend too. Zach Mickle, look him up. Don't tell him I said he was a holy terror. That, that probably wouldn't be good. But I, I remember Sherry in that, in that nursery. And I remember just appealing to her and saying, Sherry, please, whatever you do, let's make it easy for Jane and Gary and Zach and Amy to get to God. Let's not make it hard. Because the truth is, when we do, Jesus isn't happy about that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, the beautiful stories of your word that so capture our hearts and our imagination and our souls. And I ask you, Lord, as a church today, as we go out on this Lord's day and we enjoy an afternoon of rest, as we return again and and we hear from our young people and, and study the Word together in Philippians there. I ask, Lord, today that you would settle upon us with a heart of uh, compassion and mercy. Help us to be men and women like you in, in, in the beauty of your humanity. Help us to be filled with the Holy Spirit and have an expression of God in us and help us to have your mercy. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. I'll see you tonight.